Turn with me to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. I'm not sure why the Lord orders things the way he does sometimes until maybe hindsight. And why we would be here in this time of year looking at a psalm such as Psalm 88. But I do trust, I do trust that God knows what he's doing and that in the bustle and hustle of all the Christmas time activities, let's not forget it's not exactly the greatest time of year for some people. I don't want to be the one to have to burst any bubbles or take any joy or bring you to a low place without leaving you with hope. But if I'm to be true to the Scriptures and do my job to preach the whole counsel, we must visit Psalm 88. It is the only psalm in the entire Psalter like it. There is no other psalm that compares with how Psalm 88 is written. Now, I preface that because I want you to know this is something that I've dreaded for some time. And if you'll be kind to me, we'll see what's here. And I know my dread is only my weakness in flesh. That God has something from this psalm that each of us need. I know I needed what I'm going to share with you today. Psalm 88 is a hard psalm. I'm not going to try to fluff it up. There's no way that I can make it sound any better than it does. Or, or I might be guilty of adding to the Scriptures or taking away from the Scriptures when what's written is written and what stands will be here until heaven and earth pass. And we need Psalm 88 just as much as we need Psalm 150. We need Psalm 88 just as much as we need Psalm 1. And it's a song. It's a song that touches one of the deepest places of our heart and life. Now, you can stick your head in the sand, and if you want to do that, then I would suggest that now is your time to exit. You can ignore Psalm 88, and you can move on with life and everything. You can pretend that it's all peachy keen and everything is going the way that it ought to go, and there's no trouble anywhere, but... You'd only be fooling yourself. So let me be a friend today. Come alongside you. Sit down with you and work through this most difficult psalm. Hopefully I can help you see some clarity as to why it's in our Psalter as we continue savoring the Psalter. With the time we have, I would draw your attention to the inscription. We will look at that momentarily. I want you to look at verse number 13, and then we'll consider the psalm in its entirety. Psalm 88, verse number 13, I'd like for you to read this out loud with me, and let this be from your heart, if you mean these words. Psalm 88, verse 13, the Bible says, But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Lord... I ask for your divine help and unction as I share the truth of the Scriptures today. I pray, Lord, that you would not leave us in a place of dejection and that, Lord, I would by no means lead anyone down a path that would reopen old wounds or cause them to wallow in, in a self, uh, self-centered, depressed mire. Lord, we must confront the truth of Psalm 88 today or we'll not find true healing to our soul to which you would call us. And this psalm is unique in the Psalter. There is none other like it. And I'm thankful that it is the only one like it because no other psalm ends the way this psalm does. 
And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to come to a greater understanding of your loving kindness and your mercy. And thank you, Lord, that the Bible doesn't end with the last word of Psalm 88. Thank you, Lord, that we have hope as we read of those angels that came by Mary at that tomb when she was so broken, in the place on the brink of utter despair, all hopes having, she thought, been dashed upon the rocks of death, mourning over the loss of the one she loved so much, gave her life following, and now he was gone, and the angels come and pose the question, Why? Why weepest thou? O Lord, the time will come when we might hear similar words, and truly through your word we can take comfort in that you hear even beyond this life, Lord. You can give us hope, even in the midst of wondering, will there be any answer from heaven? We can still hold out hope that the only place we can direct our prayers to is to your unfailing grace, your marvelous love. I pray that you'll help us to understand where to go when life hurts and heaven is apparently silent. May each one of us remain steadfast that even when the world might mock, when it seems that you're a million miles away, Lord, we will simply follow the example of, of the psalmist here, Heman, that we will just keep on praying when darkness is our closest friend. Lord, I pray that you'll help us in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Some have titled this, When Darkness is My Closest Friend, and their workings through this psalm. It is unlike any other in the Psalter, in that no other psalm closes with the words that Psalm 88 closes with. Every psalm that we've studied, even though some of them have taken us to some very low points, to some very uh, deep, deep places with the psalmist. Inevitably, as a preacher, I've always been able to come back to some verse of hope, some, some semblance of truth that the psalmist came back to life and, and realized his hope was in God. Psalm 88 has, has not a verse to end on a high note. Read the very last word of the psalm, and that's where it ends. That's where this psalm stops. It doesn't stop in light. It stops in darkness. We can't erase it from the Psalter. We can't erase the truths that the psalmist works through from our lives. Now be frank, be honest with yourself, not with me. Have there not been times when in the back of your mind you've had questions that maybe you didn't formulate them as a as a prayer per se, but you were thinking between you and God, what's going on here? Did I miss something somewhere along the way? There have been many times throughout ministry, and I'm sure I have many more to go if the Lord tarries and I have more opportunity to pastor, that I will feel just as helpless then as I did time and time that I could tell you about with visitation, standing by people's sides, not really knowing what to say, not having any answers in and of myself. Psalm 88 speaks of a time in this psalmist's journey where there are no answers. None. And so for me to impose an answer where there is none would be for me to put myself in a place that I don't belong. I don't have all the answers. But this psalm helps me in my faith. Because even though there were no answers, I want you to notice, the psalmist says, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. I am going to keep asking. And Lord, even if you're not hearing me, I'm not going to stop praying. When life hurts and heaven is apparently silent, what do you do? When you have no answers and you're at your wit's end, what do you do? (laughs) Well, you're a pastor. You have to say that. Keep on praying. Well, that sounds so spiritual. It is. 
there's, there's, no other, there's no other recourse that I can take you to. Do you, do you understand my plight? There's nowhere else that I can go. There's no one that I can take you to that can help you but God. Maybe you would chalk that up as, well, then you're no good because you can't do what I'm wanting you to do. I'm futile. No, I I can't do everything. I, I don't have magical powers to just wave a wand and make trouble go away. Sometimes I don't know why people are going through what they're going through. Sometimes only God does. It might be because of sin, but it could be because of testing or trial or, or any other number of reasons. It doesn't have to be sin. It could just be purging of dross. I, I don't know at all. I, I can grope and, and I can pray and I can search the Scriptures. Lord, give me a verse and inevitably I come to something. But if Psalm 88 were all I had, how despondent would it be? Now, I drew your attention to the inscription. I did so on purpose because I want you to notice something. This is the last of the songs of the sons of Kohath. Korah, excuse me. The psalm for the sons of Korah. And you notice through book three, we've had many of these psalms, these songs for the sons of Korah. It's to the chief musician upon Mahalath, Leonoth. Maskil of Heman, the Ezraite. Read the inscription for Psalm 89, will you? Maskil of Ethan, the Ezraite. I don't believe you should conclude your reading of Psalm 88 with Psalm 88, verse number 18. My encouragement for you would be to continue reading into Psalm 89. Now, you can take that position with me if you believe the inscriptions are inspired. If you believe that the very inscriptions for the Psalms are as much Scripture as any other word. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, verse number 1 of this Psalm is actually the inscription. Verse number 18, then, would be verse number 19 in our English Bible. And I take it as just as much inspired as the other things that are written in the Psalm. So if Psalm 88 is the last of, for the sons of Korah, it, it is by Heman the Ezraite. Psalm 89 is by Ethan the Ezraite. Do you see the connection between the two? So while Psalm 88 itself, Heman's words, ends with verse 18, it's like, it's like the other Ezraite just picks right up where he left off. And what does he say in Psalm 89 verse 1? I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. How long? Oh, only until we get to the end of Psalm 88. That's how long I'm going to sing of His mercies. Now, we learn a lot about God's character in Psalm 88, His loving kindness, His mercy. Who's going to tell people about that from the grave? That's the argument of the psalmist. So what do you do? You just keep on praying. When there seems to be no response from heaven, you just keep on praying. That's the best help I can give you. It's unlike any other psalm. I mean, there's, there's not even a vow to praise for the future. It's, I mean, he never even says, you know, someday it's going to turn around and I'll come praise you. No, he just ends in darkness. Groping through uh, what one writer called the darkest night of the soul. Just, just seemingly groping. But again, Psalm 89 follows on its heels with such covenantal promises. The covenant of David that God made with David is seen through Psalm 89, and He will keep His covenant. He will keep His promises to Israel. It's not over until God says it's over. We don't know the exact background of the psalm, which also can be a help to us because then it applies to multiple different instances in life. I don't think we can you know, box it into one time frame in, in a writer's life. It speaks to so many, and, and it's been applied in so many venues. I'll give you some of those. But it seems to envision the despair that comes in certain life scenarios. Come with me if you would. Now, only if you would. And, and I, I understand I, I have sensitive ears here today. So I will, I will be the kindest that I can be. But I also will refuse to shy away from facing the truth that this life is a nasty life. And this world is an evil, wicked place. 
And that's because of sin. I, I know we go all the way back to the Adam's fall and all that, but wicked people do wicked things. And it's not even wicked people sometimes. It could be just someone who's trying to do what's right and they get involved and tangled in something that, that they're fighting for a cause and then they wind up in a place where Psalm 88 might be their best friend. Come with me down through the corridors of time, if you would. Let's go back to, well, let's go back to the kingdom of David. We'll, we'll just, now let me preface all that I'm about to say here with, this is, uh, this is glorified imagination, all right? We're not going to chapter and verse. I, I can't turn to, well, maybe there is a Bible story. I just haven't thought of it yet. Book In the book of the Kings, maybe Brother Mike will cover that in some of his studies. And we'll actually read about someone who would fit this bill. But this is just hypothetically my imagination. You're with me on that, okay? Stepping aside from the actual text, giving you where, where we need to go. Come with me to David's kingdom. The enemies are surrounding And David and Joab and Abner and his mighty men, they're preparing to go out to the battlefield because the battle calls. And David is confident. Our king is confident. Now, I'm imagining. Imagine with me. And we're going to go with David and we're going to fight this battle believing that the Lord's going to deliver us. But I read some of the battles, if it wasn't under David, maybe another king, where many, many lay slain afterwards. I want you to come and walk through that field with me in your mind. And maybe it's looking for struggling signs of life. In the midst of, of all that destruction, could there be a soul, an Israelite, who gallantly followed his king into battle and met sore with the enemy's archers and lies wounded? And time passes, and the day fades, and there's no medic to respond. And maybe those that were laying around him, he says goodbye to them one by one as they slip off, struggling in anguish. And his last breath closes with the feeling of Psalm 88. It's dark. Nobody came to help. I had no friends I can't walk on my own. I'm wounded beyond help, and there's nobody else here. Lord, Lord, where are you in this? There's nobody to help. That's Psalm 88. Go with me down through the corridors of time. Let's fast forward a little bit, if you would. And I use that one because, you know, we're talking about Israel, and this was an Israelite who who was singing this psalm. But fast forward, if you would, with me to another dark, dark time. And this would be in the history of the church, the time of the Reformation. There was a man named Bishop Hooper. Anybody familiar with Bishop Hooper's story? All right, well, I'll try to educate you a little bit. I'm not a historian, so don't quote me on all the details. But this is not really glorified imagination because we have his own writings and his own accounts. In the day and time in which Bishop Hooper lived... Some turbulence was happening in England over the throne and who would be on the throne. And Queen Mary ascended the throne in power. And many of you know she was staunch Catholic. And she's known throughout history by a title that's not very pleasant, Bloody Mary. Why? Because she, with a vengeance went after those that were, uh, were Protestant. That means they were of the Reformation, maybe evangelical in their presentation of the gospel, preaching the gospel. Bishop Hooper was one of those that fell in her crosshairs. And Bishop Hooper sat wasting away in a prison under Mary. And in darkness, one of the Psalms in which he references in a letter back to his wife just prior to him being burned at the stake for preaching. That's unthinkable, isn't it? I mean, we're Americans. We can't even understand what it would be like to live in a place where our own government would come after us and tie us to a pole and do that kind of wickedness. That's just unheard of. Well, maybe not so much because we still have gas chambers and electric chairs and we still have capital punishment today. It's not too far-fetched that 
you know, Christians couldn't be named as terrorists or something like that or put on watchdog lists and different things and, and uh, people could come after Christians and do, hey, we're not out of the woods. You with me? Bishop Hooper wrote in one of the Psalms that he included to his dear wife, some of his last words were Psalm 88. He says, Psalm 88 is for the soul that lives where I do. You see, there's no knight in shining armor coming through to rescue him and, and come. And, you know, we always want that in the movies, right? In the Hollywood movies. We've got to play it up. Just at the second when the noose is about to hang, here comes the arrow flying through. And, and you know, they're saved and they're going to live. And It doesn't always work out that way. Hebrews 11 is clear about that. You have many who were delivered. And, and God's glory on them was to deliver them. Others, however, were sawn asunder. That's Hebrews 11, part B, okay? We always want to be in part A, and we want the deliverance, and we want to see that happen. But remember the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace? We're not going to serve you, Nebuchadnezzar. If God delivers us, that's up to Him. And and I think I'd be more like, yes, please, Lord, that's what I want. But they said, even so, if He doesn't, we'll not bow the knee to you. And so they had no promise of deliverance of going into that furnace and coming out. It was only by the grace and the providence and the moving of God that they came out and didn't even smell like smoke. Yet the men who threw them in died because the heat was so hot. That's not a fairy tale. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it works out like Bishop Hooper. And he didn't come out of that one like the three Hebrew children did. He died. And Psalm 88 was his closest friend in that deep, dark dungeon of Mary as he awaited his doom. Let me tell you about another man. This man, uh, this man lived alongside John Newton. John Newton, we know his salvation story. He was on a slave ship and he remembered his mother praying for him. He trusts Christ. He gets gloriously saved and I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. That's John Newton. Let me tell you about his friend, whom he admired greatly and really got to know him in a brief time in his life. This man, John Newton, would have wished that he could have had more hymns written in the whole only hymnal with this man's name attached to them. You sing some of this man's hymns today. And this man, if you read his biography, you know he had ups and downs in his life. And he went to some of the most despondent places. You see, when he was converted, uh, a lot of his struggles were probably, if he were alive today, he'd be diagnosed as as a mental schizophrenic or bipolar or some kind of thing like that, I'm sure. They'd have some mental disease for him. But this man thought that he had committed the unpardonable sin because he tried to take his own life. And this is where John Newton really kind of steps in. And once he found the grace of God, it helped him through one of the darkest depressions he had ever been in his life. And through that, he wrote some of the most moving hymns that we have today. And this man ministered alongside John Newton and was going to publish this only hymnal with him for many years. They, they served together. But then he plummeted back down into a, one of the deepest places in his life again. In this day and time, you know, they didn't have movie theaters and all of that. So much of what was taken in through entertainment would have been through reading. And so um, a lot of the stories and things, maybe you would read something like Robinson Crusoe and you would go on a voyage with him and wind up, you know, shipwrecked on an island somewhere uh, off of the Caribbean and, you know, you'd have that, that story. I, I love Robinson Crusoe. If you're going to read it, read the unabridged version because they don't cut God out of that one. Uh, I'll just leave that with you. There's another story that probably Robinson Crusoe, you know, maybe it was partially based off of, and this was Anson's voyages around the world. Anybody familiar with Anson's voyage around the world? A little bit? Okay. You talk about a travesty, a tragedy. I mean, the man left with about eight ships and almost a thousand men from England. And he's going to sail across the Atlantic with these eight ships. And he gets down around Cape Horn. And things go tragically wrong time and time again. 
uh, I won't give you the whole thing, but basically all the ships are scattered. And they had rendezvous points. Uh, along the way, you have disease breaking out all, along, all, all among the ships. And then they run into Spanish ships that they have to run from. And, and their masts are breaking. And they're pulling into port every chance they get to try to repair the vessels. And then they come around South America. You know, this is before the Panama Canal. And all of that, and you might have had, uh, you might have had some, you know, the Strait of Magellan. You could go through that if you knew where you were going, but it's very narrow, dangerous down there. The weather changes just like that. It was a, known as a as a as a place for shipwreck and desolation, just to try to make it around that. Well, his goal was to try to get over to China. He eventually did, but he only made it there with, with maybe a third, of who he left England with. A third. And in this day and time, you know, scurvy, just a, a, a lack of vitamin C, nutritional deficiency. They hadn't figured all of that out. And men were dropping like flies. Their food was turning. They had to, they had to abandon so much from their vessels. There were a couple of ships that even turned around and went back to England. And it was recalling and recounting some of these voyages, Anson's voyages around the world, and the tragedies that happened to some of those sailors that this man took up his pen, the, the hymn writer, and he wrote a hymn in our, in our more modern times that might parallel Psalm 88. And part of the inspiration that came to him from that was remembering Anson's voyages and the disease and the death that plagued and the, and the tragedy after tragedy that occurred on this voyage. And he imagined a sailor under Anson finding himself, you know, a seasoned swimmer, finding himself in the seas of South America, being overwhelmed by the waves, and no one there to help. There's no ship in sight. And he goes down, and it's bitterly cold waters, and it's not long before he succumbs to those waves. Come with me down through the corridors of time to the decks of the Titanic, and you'll find a place fitting for Psalm 88. Come with me to a place in New York where now sits two vacant holes in the ground and two towers that once burned and raged in flame from terrorist attacks and come to some of those stairwells where people never made it out and you'll find a place where Psalm 88 belongs. Come to me through, with me through the history of Israel to a place called Auschwitz and you'll find a place beyond any human help, where sadly, as sad as it is, Psalm 88 belongs. That hymn writer's name was William Cooper. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose all their guilty stains. The other psalm that he wrote was Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I think I'm misquoting that. He didn't write there is a fountain, did he? Did he write that psalm? Maybe somebody else did that psalm. I might have that confused. But the one that says, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's the one that I was trying to think of. What's the name of that hymn? I'm losing my mind up here. Come Thou Fount. Yeah, there is a fountain that's come thou fount. I can see why I get it confused. <laughs> What's that? It's right. Yeah. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And the story of that hymn is... You know, he was in a carriage coming, uh, coming on a trip, and this lady got into his carriage and, and started talking about this new hymn that was written and, and had no idea that the man who wrote the very poem that inspired the psalm was there in the carriage with her and talked about how it had changed her life and, and all the hope that she'd found. And, and he went away from that with a little bit of hope that what he had done was making a difference. Come with me as a pastor. To many a hospital room, come with me and sit down with families that you can see in their eyes the questions linger. Come with me in my own family and sit with me in days gone by next to my meemaw as she's got a blank stare in her eyes looking out and I'm wondering, does she even know who I am? Alzheimer's is a terrible disease. You can fill in the blank, okay? Well, I don't want to limit it and put it in a box. There are places in life where Psalm 88 is real. And the psalmist finds himself in that place when affliction is profitable. I've just been reading and working through uh, 
some, some of the life of Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant again. And I just recently came to the climax of the, of the end of the war when Lee would come and with all the dignity and the respect that that man commanded from both north and south would come and offer to surrender his sword to Ulysses S. Grant because of the state of the Army of Northern Virginia. And I thought about the many battlefields that riddled the south where I grew up and the battlefield that my granddad worked for, Pickett's Mill Battlefield, Kennestone, Kennesaw Mountain, Chickamauga, Chattahoochee. I mean, all through the south. There's memorials of the tragedy our country endured through that most horrific time of civil war. I wonder if there weren't some soldiers, whether they were wearing blue or gray is irrelevant, laying on a battlefield somewhere, pleading with God, a synonymous strain to what would sound from Psalm 88. I wonder. Affliction, can it be profitable? Thomas Fuller wrote in reference to his own sufferings in the Civil War. He said this, I have observed that towns which had been casually burnt have been built again. More beautifully than before. Mud walls, afterwards, they're made of stone. And roofs, they were formerly but thatched after they're advanced to be tiled. The apostle tells me, he went on to say, that I must not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to happen unto me. May I likewise prove improved by it. Let my renewed soul, which grows out of the ashes of the old man, be a more pious fabric and a stronger structure so shall affliction be my advantage. When life hurts and heaven is silent, I would encourage you, Psalm 88 teaches us, keep on praying. Keep praying. Don't lose hope in God. The psalmist never lost hope. He doesn't. He doesn't come to the place of total despondency. He never gives up hope on God. Although he does say it's much to his cause and many of the things that have happened to him, whether it's an illness, I don't know if you want a biblical illustration, these tend to, to have a deeper impact. Let me illustrate it this way for you. If we look at some of what the psalmist says here in verse number 15, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. I think of a young man who started so well. A young man who ascended to the throne of Israel. And power went to his head. And lifted up in pride, he took upon him more than he should. And this man approached, as king, he approached the office of the priest. And he did what was only allowed for the priest to do that day. And as he reached for the altar, the Lord smote him with leprosy. And he died a leper. That man's name was Uzziah. I think about another time in the Bible when Moses was leading God's children of Israel. And and Miriam and Aaron stood up and rebuked Moses. And what happened to Miriam? God smote her with leprosy. I think about another man that was just serving God and serving God's man, Elisha. And Naaman, the leper, comes and gets cleansed. And on the way out, Gehazi intercepts Naaman and says, No, uh, he changed his mind. We want the gift back. You remember what happened to Gehazi? Smitten with leprosy. And I wonder if leprosy might not be close to the affliction Textually, that's described here by the psalmist. That's from you, Lord. There's no other argument that Uzziah can make. It's not like he can say, yeah, I rubbed up against the wrong person and I caught leprosy. He knew it was from God. There's no other explanation that Miriam can give you except God did it. And thank the Lord, she found cleansing and healing. But Gehazi, I guarantee you, he knew. 
that that was God's judgment on him for overstepping and committing a wicked, heinous sin and tarnishing the very testimony of the God of Israel and taking that gift back from Naaman. You see, sometimes things do come from God. Not always. It could be other issues I understand, but in the psalmist's mind, in this psalm, this is something that God has delivered to him. This is not a cross to bear. This is an infirmity. This is an affliction that God has given to him, maybe because of sin, maybe, who knows? The background of the psalm is unknown. For whatever purpose, God has afflicted. And the psalmist calls attention to that. Excuse me. It's a masculine psalm. Instruction, making prudent, making one wise. If you'll spend time with Psalm 88... Not too much because I don't want you to wind up in despair. You need to come out and read Psalm 89. But if you'll get alone with Psalm 88, it'll make you wiser. It'll teach you some things about life that maybe your parents have been hidden from you or maybe you've been sheltered from. Hey, this is not a friendly world. There are wicked things. And sometimes we get in a place that is, that is at the utter depths, free among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave. Whom thou rememberest no more. Lord, you've forgotten these that are there. Who's going to praise you from the grave? What a dark psalm without parallel. The most desolate of the Psalter, it's been called. Affinities with the book of Job. It's not driven by the wisdom question of God's righteousness. Lamentations 3 would be in the balance as well. A lament psalm, no doubt couple of ideas for you here. You can advance to the next slide. When trouble comes silently, what do you do? Keep on praying. We overcome, we become overcome with troubles from God's wrath. There's three cries that are noted in this psalm. And structurally, you'll do well to note these three cries. Look at verse number one. O Lord God of my salvation, I have what? I have what? Cried day and night before Thee. Day and night, 24-7, around the clock, I'm crying before You, Lord. You're the God of my salvation. This would be Jehovah, forgive me, uh, Adonai. This would be Jehovah, Elohi, Yeshua, Joshua, salvation, that's related to the term salvation. Elohi is God. Jehovah is all caps Lord. You're the God of my salvation. Mark the word cried there. This has the sense, the idea of basically to cry out for help. It's a plea to the God who saves. It's a prayer of faith. And that's how the psalm begins. Boy, if we could just end with verses 1 and 2, <laughs> that'd be Psalm 88. It'd be... You know, a lot easier to preach, but it doesn't end there. Now look at verse number 9, if you will. Mine eye mourneth by reason of what? Affliction. Lord Jehovah, there it is again, I have called daily upon thee, stretched out my hands unto thee. So even in the context, you can see the calling out there has a little bit more of a force to it. This is to call out loudly. It comes from the Hebrew karah. To call out loudly. The first, uh, the first would have been from Tsa'ak. And uh, that, that's a cry out for help. Here it's a call loudly. And like the first cry, it could be a cry for help, but it's often uh, it's tended by a frequent brush with death. This is a close call. And, and now, you know, I'm calling out loudly. And so it's building in anticipation. Brings a different hue, a different, uh, a different light to how the psalmist is calling out. There's one more. Look at verse number 13 that we read together. Unto thee have I cried. Yet a different word. Still synonymous, okay? We don't want to read too much into it because they're just synonyms. Synonyms, yeah. They're just synonyms. We do that in English. We use the same word, so don't get too caught up in it. But this one is from Shivati. Shivati. I cry 
to you for help. Literally, you can understand it that way. And that implies a, an utter intensity. One writer described it as to utter a successive series of screams. Do you see the intensity of the psalmist? It's like, I called out, I'm not hearing anything, I'm getting more intense, I'm crying unto you because I've had this brush with death, and now, Lord, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, can you even hear me? It builds, and it builds. The center word of this psalm, you know, I like to do that sometimes. I haven't had the time to sit down and count where the center syllable is in the Hebrew. You know, if you break the, the psalm down in Hebrew, I love to go and listen to, the, to someone read it in Hebrew and listen to the, the rhythm and the cater and the cadence, uh, the cater, the cadence, whatever that is, I don't know what cater is, the cadence of, of the, the, the flow as it comes off of a Hebrew person's lips when they're speaking it. It's beautiful. It really is a beautiful psalm. Yeah, I have to really work to try to interpret what they're saying, and then i you know, still working through English to get there. It's not perfect, I get it, but I'm just in awe at, at the beauty of how the words flow. The center word, the center word of the psalm, if you counted all the words in the Hebrew and then went to the very middle of it, the middle word is, is, has the idea of imprisoned. Uh, it is the word... Uh, let's see, Punism, where is it? I'll find it. Loving kindness. Laid. Well, I wrote it down on my desk. If you want to know, I'll tell you later. It's a word that it means shut up. I think shut up. If you find the words shut up in the psalm, locked up, prisoned, imprisoned, that's the very middle word. And everything else kind of flows around that. So we see the three cries. What do we do when we're overcome with troubles and it's apparently because of God's wrath? Verses 1 through 7 helps us understand what the psalmist is going through. He says, my troubles, I mean, they're threatening my life. Verse number 3. My strength is gone. I have no more strength. Verse number 4. Lord, I am forgotten. You don't even remember me anymore. I'm so far away, I'm, I'm gone. I, nobody remembers me, you don't remember me. That's verse number five. I'm at rock bottom. Verse number six, this is the lowest of the low point. You don't get any lower than this. How can you get any lower than the grave? The, the place of the abode of the dead. Lord, I am drowning in your wrath. Verse number seven. Are you excited about this psalm yet? You see, I have my work cut out for me, and that's why I said I'll be really glad if you come back next Sunday. In a moment when we have to ask, you know, by whom would Psalm 88 have been sung originally? By what congregation could we sit down? I mean, how would you like to come on a Sunday morning and we sing a song like this for our opening hymn? Brother Mike, we, we're not going to do that around here, by the way. There's only one, and it's right here in Psalm 88. And we're dealing with it now in the history of Broomfield Baptist Church. We can move on after we're done today, right? Amen. You want the words to Cooper's hymn? Cast away. It goes like this. No voice divine, the storm allayed, no light propitious, propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. He's talking about that guy that went over on Elm's Anselm's voyage, lost at sea, drowned. He says, we each went over, snatched from all effectual aid. There's no one to help. We perished. He perished, I perished, Cooper's saying. But listen to this. But I, beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he, come thou found of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Hardly a song. You know, Psalm 88, it's hardly, hardly a song for congregational worship. But then we might find a, a meaning, a deeper meaning, for the two selahs that break up the psalm into three sections. Think about it. Pause long enough to think about how unkind life can be sometimes. How unkind is life when we have to gather around an empty table or a table that has empty chairs around it at Thanksgiving 
or we gather around a Christmas tree that once used to be filled with banter and laughter and now there's vacancies. How kind is life? Not very kind. But how good is our God in light of it? One of Cooper's greatest friends during his ups and downs, as I mentioned, was John Newton. His hope still found an anchor through the help of others that was around him in his life. Not like the psalmist here who says, I don't have any friends. All my friends and all my acquaintances are gone. There's nobody here but me, Lord. I'm alone, I'm afflicted, and I'm reaching out to God. I wonder if Psalm 88 wouldn't be more at home and find a place in the heart of someone living in an assisted living facility that no family comes to visit them. Or worse, they're not even in a place where they get regular help. They're just pining away and they're, they're a believer, but they're reaching out to God, but they're alone, they're afflicted. My friends have forsaken me. You know, when I first got sick, everybody was there to help and as time went on, one by one, they kind of fell by the wayside and nobody's really there to help anymore. And it's just me, Lord. It's just me. Lord, if, now, this is an interesting argument from the psalmist. Who's going to tell others about you if, if I go to the grave? How am I going to witness for you if, if I can't be alive to do it? That's a good argument, right? Let's come to the Lord and say, Lord, give me another year. Give me another, uh, another day. Give me another opportunity. Now, if you go to the Lord and ask Him to let you live so you can witness for Him, you better do it. I'm just saying, <laughs> you better do it. Don't waste the opportunity. I'm alone. I'm afflicted. I'm reaching out to God. That's verses 8 through 10. I'm wondering over God's seeming inattention. Verses 11 through 18. Others need to know about your loving kindness. They need to know your faithfulness. Lord, let me tell them. Let me live so I can tell them. They won't know about your wonders. They won't know the miracles that you can do, except you let me be your witness. Why won't you answer me, God? Look at verse 14. I need to hear from you. And you're not answering me. All my life I've suffered. Now, this was something that plagued him from his youth up. He tells you that in verse number 15. Your wrath overwhelms me. Verse number 16. I'm surrounded by terrors. Your terrors. Verse 17. Lord, there's nobody else that I can go to. Do you still see, even in the light of all the despair, the psalmist knows there's no one else that can help him but God? And he hasn't lost faith in God. He's still praying to God. He's still pleading to God because nobody else has any answers. And he doesn't know where else to go, but he knows that God can hear. It's just that he's not for whatever reason. So he hasn't lapsed in his faith. He still believes just as firmly in God's loving kindness and mercy and miracles and everything that God can do. It's just it's not happening in his life at that moment in time. He says, Lord, there's nobody that can help me but you. There's nobody that can do this. For the troubled. For the troubled. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me. Thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Our sufferings are of great service, old Spurgeon said to us, when God blesses them, for they help us to be useful to others. It must be a terrible thing for a man never to have suffered physical pain. You say, well, I should be like that man. But unless you had extraordinary, extra, extraordinary grace, you'd grow hard and cold, Spurgeon said. You would get to be a sort of cast iron man, breaking other people with your touch. No, let my heart be tender, even soft. For if it must be softened by pain, I would gladly know how to bind up my fellow's wound. Let my eye have a tear ready for my brother's sorrows, even if, for that to be so, I should have to shed 10,000 for my own. An escape from suffering would be an escape from the power to sympathize, and that ought to be deprecated beyond all things. Luther was right when he said that affliction was the best book in the minister's library. How can the man of God sympathize with the afflicted ones if he knows nothing at all about their troubles? 
I remember a hard, miserly fellow who said that the minister ought to be very poor so that he might have sympathy with the poor. I told him I thought he ought to have a a turn at being very rich too so that he might have sympathy with the very rich. And I suggested to him that perhaps upon the whole it would be the handiest to keep him somewhere in the middle so that he might more easily range over the experience of all classes. If the man of God who's to minister to others could always be robust, it would perhaps be a loss. If he could always be sickly, it might be equally so. But for the pastor to be able to range through all the places where the Lord suffers his sheep to go is doubtless the advantage of the flock. For what it is to ministers, that it will be to each one of you, according to his calling, for the consolation of the people of God. I know not why our family has endured some of the heartache that we have. But I do know that there's been somebody with me in the darkest moments. I'm talking about moments when I wondered, I wondered, Lord, what's going on? And through that, knowing a calm assurance that even though I, I mean, I, I, I still don't have answers to this day, I do not have answers for some of the questions that I have. But I do know I have a peace that passes understanding that God is using it on purpose. As Second Corinthians says, that we might comfort others wherewith with the comfort of we're, we're comforted of God. I don't pretend to have all the answers. And, and your hurt might not feel exactly like mine, but hurt is hurt. And sometimes life hurts. And we don't just fuzzy it over and polish it up like we do with, with death today. You know, it's like we don't even want to face the reality that they're actually gone. We dress them up and put them in their best and put makeup all over them and mask everything we can. And I know, I'm sorry. It's reality. When the only recourse is prayer, I'm just saying, we have an aversion to facing the truth. When the only recourse is prayer, what do you do? You can advance the slide. The psalmist teaches us to keep on praying. Now, I must hasten to a close. But notice verse number 1. I pointed it out. It's Jehovah, Elohi, Yeshua, Lord God of my salvation. Who do we go to? No one but the God of our salvation. Listen to my prayer. Lord, hear me. Listen to my prayer, verse number 2. I don't have anyone else that can help me but you, Lord. There's no one that can help me in this, verse number 9. And then the climax of it all, verse number 13. I am not going to give up asking you until either I'm gone or I have an answer. Lord, I'm not going to stop. My prayer shall prevent thee. Every morning, Lord, this is my prayer. Day and night, this is my prayer. I'm not stopping until I've heard from heaven. And the psalm closes without any answer from heaven, by the way. But the psalmist never stops asking. It's perpetuated. I'm not going to give up asking. The word prevent, don't let that throw you off. We use it completely different today. It's no longer used the way that it was used when the translators put it in the, pay, in the passage. But that doesn't have to confuse us. The word prevent simply means to go before. And if you look up Webster's, he's got some interesting thoughts on the word prevent. There's like six total definitions. The last one is to hinder, and that's how we use it today, to prevent, to stop somebody, to hinder them. We prevent them from doing it. That's not the sense here. It is to go before, prevent to go before. My prayers are going to come before you, Lord, as a sweet-smelling savor every day. Now, I told you I hasten to a close, and I do so with a very moving story that I found in my studies that I trust will be as much of a blessing and an encouragement to you through the darkness of Psalm 88 that we as New Testament believers know that death has no sting. The grave has no victory over us anymore. 
because of what Jesus did. And the simple title to this story that I'm going to share with you in closing is called, You Come To. You Come To. In October 1969, what I had feared most happened without warning, wrote homemaker Phyllis Cochran. Our middle child, seven-year-old Susie, was diagnosed as having a brain tumor. The neurologist's words cut deeply. Your daughter may die. Phyllis felt her world just toppling down. Even the beautiful fall colors, they all seemed dark and grim. Questions flew to her mind. Is is this all there is to life, to be born, to live, and to die? Is, Is there a purpose in life? Have I missed something? And though she didn't know God, she cried to Him for help. Susie survived her surgery with her right side impaired, and she began trying to learn to sit, to stand, to walk again. But a second operation left her hovering near death. That night was the darkest yet of my life. While Phil and our two other children slept, I sat alone crying to God. I felt as though I were in an inky, dark tunnel. And God waited at the other end, and I needed desperately to reach Him, but I couldn't find my way. Phyllis thumbed through her grandmother's old Bible. As she did that, her eyes fell on Psalm 88 and verse number 1. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before Thee. Let my prayer come before Thee, incline Thine ear to my every cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. Those words proved a a sudden shaft of light, and Phyllis continued reading through the night. Susie slowly recovered, and when a neighbor invited them to a Bible study, both Phyllis and Susie attended. And there, they heard the, the plain spoken gospel that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, and all who would believe on Him could find everlasting life. The plain spoken gospel that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures, for our sins and was raised the third day. And soon, both Phyllis and Susie were gloriously saved. They were born again. Susie died soon thereafter. But her last words, her last words were, when they take me out of here, make sure you come too. And in keeping with that simple request, every member of the family has found Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, along with many friends, many relatives. And one day, says Phyllis, our family will be complete again to walk together on streets of gold. On streets of gold. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before Thee. Thank You for not shying away from a hard journey, from a difficult place to go, but a place that nonetheless God knows we must consider. For we were never created to handle the supernatural that comes through death. But through the hope of the psalmist, we can join in his prayer and we can heed little Susie's words. One day, we're coming to. And this life, do your worst, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say that or not. Don't do your worst. Let me, let me be in the middle somewhere like Spurgeon was saying. Amen? But even then, I know not. But I do know there's a God who cares. And He loved us so much that He left all the splendors. He left the streets of gold. He left 
the gates of pearl. He left heaven to come be born and laid in a lowly manger and then to die a wicked death at the Roman crucifixion, though he was sinless and innocent. And he came and suffered through the deepest, darkest plunging that we could ever go. Psalm 88 closes with words that our Savior uttered from the cross, the same sentiment. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's how Psalm 22 begins. But I remind you, that psalm ends with He hath done. That's victorious in that it is paid in full. And when Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was only anticipating the last words He would say before His death when He laid down His life. It is finished. And because it is finished, we can come too. We can come too through faith in what our Savior has done.